Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We're broadcasting from Chile and getting ready to snow Washington, D.C., the home of all political stability here in the U.S., reacting to markets uh, or markets reacting there. We have Chinese delegations coming to Washington. We have all sorts of uh, news items hitting the tape and to break it all down in terms of uh, uh, Wall Street. Uh, Washington, and the world. We're going to start with my friend Kenny Polcari tonight, uh, Dan Mahaffey, and the great Greg Valliere is with us in studio. Uh, this is going to be a great forecast. Please remember that on the forecast, we believe that money is hard to make. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And above all, we believe that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. If you're feeling fearful or ebullient, gleeful, joyful, whatever it is, check your feelings at the door, pay attention to your wallets, remember the fish markets, ignore the screaming and the yelling, and pay attention to the price of fish. Kenny Polcari is one of our great longtime contributors on the Farcast, was uh, formerly with William O'Neill and Company on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, he was there forever, over 30 years, ladies and gentlemen. Now with Butcher Joseph Asset Management, the worthy competition, he's uh, come over to the light side. He's joined the force. He's left the dark side. This is great news for all of mankind, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, Kenny Polcari, to the Farcast. Hey, Michael. How are you? It's a pleasure to be back. Uh, well, we've missed you, and we've had all of the cards and letters and the notes uh, trying to figure out where you were, and because nobody's known what to do about markets without Paul Kari, you know, it's been a problem. I hear you. Well, that's right. I'm back, so let's go. We can talk all about it, whatever you need. Let's go. Well, look, hey, we've had a full 20% correction coming into December. We've had a 17% rally from the lows. We're up, what, 9% so far year to date? Uh, in 2019, yep. we've had a good uh, we had a good year this past month, didn't we? <laughs> we've had a good year. As a matter of fact, I put it in my note this morning. You know, the the all the indexes, the transports, the Dow, the S and P, the Russell, uh, and the Nasdaq are all up double digits, right? With the Russell being up by far the most at the moment, about 16 percent year to date. Fabulous. Uh, certainly a great re- a great rebound off of what happened uh, at the end of 2018. So, t- so tell us, is it, this wasn't really expected by uh, too many people. I mean, that, that we had a correction and that it would rebound is one thing. But this has been, has this been what you would expect, Kenny? I mean, this has really been a pretty strong rally off that bottom. Well, it's been a very strong rally. I didn't actually think it was going to be as strong as it's turned out to be. But I do think that uh, a lot of people are putting behind them the sense that uh, the clouds, you know, that is really cloudy out there because I don't think it is. Uh, and I think they're quite excited about this potential for uh, this U.S.-Sino trade deal. And I think it is coming. And I think uh, people are going to be excited about it. Clearly, the market's excited about it. Uh, and so, you know, it feels good. It does feel good. Should it feel good? Should we care that it feels good, Kenny? I mean, you know, one of the things they taught us in the 70s was if it feels good, do it. And I've always said in the markets, uh, don't do that. If it feels bad, do it. That's what you should do with stocks. Yeah, but, you know, something we're not at the point. I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't think or I'm not suggesting that, you know, it's so good that it's 
that it's euphoric at the moment. I think a lot of it was just kind of a rebound from what I thought was a way overreaction at the end of 2018. So really, you know, it's kind of made up for some of that damage. And I think it feels about good right now. So I don't I think it's full steam ahead. I don't think the market's going to run away by any stretch. I think it's going to even after the if this trade deal comes out, I think the market's going to digest a little bit because it's run up ahead of the expectation of a trade deal. Uh, but I think it feels I think it feels OK here. Sixteen and a half times earnings right now for the S&P 500. That's a little bit above the long term average at about 15 and a half. A it's it, just a little right. I mean, uh, are you concerned uh, about valuations? I, I'm not concerned about valuations yet because rates are still artificially artificially low. And by the way, the sense now is that the Fed is on complete hold for 2019. No more increases at all. And the talk and the chatter, if you know, if you've noticed, has now turned to a potential rate cut in early 2020 if if the global economy starts to uh, starts to run into some strong headwinds. So I think that's going to hold the market right where it is. I think if rates start to go up, then you'll see the market correct a little bit. But I don't see that at all, which is what I think is holding the market here at 16 times. So do you think it's a reasonable point? to? Now, look, now that you're a Jedi, now that you've left the dark side there uh, and, and, you, and you've yeah. come over to the light here, we look at a market that's at 16 times earnings. We think, OK, uh, I'm going to look at earnings growth uh, because that's I got two ways at this point really to drive pr- share prices. I've got a multiple expansion or I've got some earnings growth. Earnings growth for the S&P, people are still talking. You know, we've, we, we, we're past the tax cut. We've anniversaried past the tax cut. Uh, so right. we could have, what, 5 to 6% earnings growth this year, um, 2% dividend. Is it going to be an 8% year from here? What, do you, what would you tell clients? I, well, certainly, you know, 8% is kind of, that's right in the norm, right? A 5% plus when you add in dividends, you're right, 7 to 8%. And I think that's what it does feel like right now i don't think it's going to be a crazy year but nor do i see certainly in the u.s anyway nor do i see um a down year at the moment right i mean listen you might get weakness in europe you might get weakness in in asia but i actually think the u.s feels okay and listen we'll we'll be like the prettiest girl in the street right and that it will attract uh investors that will attract investment as long as the u.s economy uh continues to chug along and i and i think it will so yeah i think people should be prepared for you know, a return to a return to normalcy somewhere between say eight and nine percent return on the year for the whole year. So now, Kenny, let me just be specific and drill down a little bit because it takes us to one of two places. We're already up what nine percent so far this year on the S and P five hundred thereabouts. Is that right? And a little bit more. Right? Yeah, we're actually up. Uh, we're actually on the S and P as of tonight. We're up. Okay, 11% for the S&P so far this year we're up. Uh, So uh, are we saying that pretty much we're going to have a lot of volatility and be very happy if we end the year exactly at these levels? Or are we saying we can expect another 8% and it's going to take us up to darn near 20% returns for 2019? Yeah, no, so here's what I think. Because I think that, you know, we're looking at plus 8 to plus 10% as, as six weeks into the year. But remember, we came off, we started at, at what was really, in my opinion, was an oh, very much an oversold uh, position. Oh, here right? we I go. A lot of people thought, I think a lot of people thought what happened. Here we go. December, December, We're going to explain why 20% isn't really going to be 20%. Is that what you're going to do? No, so I don't necessarily think it's going to be 20%, but I would not be surprised if we saw the S&P 
Like right now, if you look at it, we're up 10%. If you saw the S&P up 15% at the end of the year, so say another 5% from here, I would not be surprised if that's what you saw. That would be a great return. It would be a rebound, uh, a little bit of a rebound from what was a way oversold position. And then we're okay. But look, there's still a lot of there's still a lot of question marks out there, right? Will the U.S. and China make the deal? I think they will. What will, kind of you know, deal? Wait, 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 wait. Hang on, hang on. You think China and the U.S. will make a deal? What you said the deal? Uh, what deal? What do we get? So, so I think the deal is not going to be uh, the full-on great deal that everybody wants. I think you're going to get pieces. I think they're going to fight and push back on technology. Uh, because that seems to be a sticking point that they can't get over. So I think what's going to end up happening is we're going to get pieces of a deal uh, with China. They're going to they're going to come to agreement. You know, as we move along, there's not going to be one big deal. I don't think. Uh, and so therefore, I think what's going to cause some headwind for us is the sticking point over intellectual property and technology. That's what China's really pushing back on, and and it depends on how hard they push and how hard he pushes. But I think for the rest of it, I think that we'll get kind of a piecemeal deal as we go along, enough to keep it alive and enough to keep the conversations going. So you, are, you think, I mean, there's a deal there, but is it the deal where, you know, they agree to buy some soybeans and corn and they're going to take super uh, quantum computing? No, no. I mean, no, that's I the trade. That's been the China trade so far. They, and it's actually, there really uh, hadn't been much of a trade. They don't even buy that many. I mean, they buy soybeans and everything, but they just take our, they take our, uh, uh, technology, yeah, they take our technology and our inter right. Right, intellectual capital, right? I mean, they just take it. Right. So, you know, now we're right. trying to make and a deal. Right. So that's the sticking point, the intellectual property and the technology. I think the other stuff, look, yeah, they'll buy koi, soybeans and corn and, and pork, whatever else they'll do. That's fine. But um, I think they're really going to come to the trade deal when they talk about all those other manufactured products, as well as then as they're going to have to come to a deal on technology and digital property. Otherwise, the whole thing's going to blow. And he's made that very clear that they need they need to back off. They need to be honest and come to a deal there. And that's where I think you're going to see the most pushback. That's where I think it's, it's the trade deal is going to get carried on longer than we expect. But in the end, I do believe that this trade war is not good for either side, certainly not good for them. Uh, we've held up better than they have. And I think if this drags on, they're going to end up in, in a, a worse position. Trade so I think that they'll, they're going to want to make the deal. It's just how fast they want to make the deal. All right. So trade wars are always tough, and they will be tough on both sides. And we've seen some toughness on both sides. So, Kenny, we're coming into our last minute and a half here. Tell me what worries you now. What, what, would you, uh, what keeps you up at night? And what advice do you have for our clients, uh, Fred and Ethel, who are out there, who are faithful listeners of the forecast and, and hang on Kenny Polcari's every word, as well they should, as, as do <laughs> yeah. I, frankly. As they hang on my words. So listen, again, and you and I talk about this all the time, Fred and Ethel are yeah. long-term investors. They're not short-term day traders. So Fred and Ethel continue to need to eliminate the noise, not pay attention to the daily volatility and the daily headlines that cause the, the you know the short-term volatility. But stay focused on the long-term. Make sure your your portfolio is well balanced and diversified. Remember, it's not a static investment. It's dynamic, and you constantly need to kind of be looking at it, nurturing it, whether it's quarterly. However. That would be number one. What keeps me up at night or what's going to keep me up at night is really uh, whether or not what the next move for the Fed is, because the talk now is that they're doing nothing. And then the, and then the talk is that there's going to be a rate cut. If there's a rate cut, 
then that really means that the Fed is much more concerned. Wait, 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 wait. You don't think there's a chance of a rate cut? Come on. I don't think there's a chance of a I don't think there's a chance of a rate cut. Give me a percentage. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Give me a percentage chance for a rate cut. Zero, right? Me? Me? I think it's probably close to zero. I'd say 5%. I don't think there's a chance of a rate cut I mean, they could always accelerate the selling of the bond portfolio. They've got other arrows in the quiver, right? They've got a listen. Yes. And I was on CNBC last week and Joe Labornia came out. He thinks the next move for the Fed is going to be a cut. And I looked at him. I go, Joe, you're kidding me. How could there be a cut? It would send the complete wrong message to the community. Yeah. It's one thing to roll over. It's another. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want I don't know what exactly. I know what I wanted to say Joe was doing there, but I can't say it even on a podcast. Uh, Hey, Kenny Polcari, you are the best. Thank you so much. I feel like all's right with the world. The universe is now rotating in the proper direction. From Butcher Joseph Asset Management, my friend Kenny Polcari, the articulate, uh, the dashing, uh, uh, and much older than I, Kenny Polcari. Thanks for being on the forecast. Good night, you bastard. Ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Mom, I hope you didn't hear that. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be right back with the great Dan Mahaffey talking Washington on the Farcast. Stay with us. You're listening to Farcast. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. We'd like to introduce a new daily show for you, the Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Every morning before the sun rises, we bring you markets, commodities, and futures. Just the facts to start your day. The Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or your favorite platform. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast. Fabulous music. Welcome back to the Farcast. We're so glad you're with us again this week. Thank you so much for letting us uh, join you in your earbuds, in your offices, in your cars, and in your kitchens, wherever you've uh, been able to take us. We appreciate being with you. We hope you really enjoyed that with Kenny Polcari, and we have a great Farcast for you this evening. Uh, Dan Mahaffey is up next from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Dan, you might remember, uh, is a uh, a scholar of politics, uh, spent time in China, has his master's degree from Georgetown University, studied at Normal University, or East National uh, Normal University in Shanghai, China, speaks Mandarin Chinese, uh, is, spends a lot of time on Capitol Hill. Uh, so uh, really our terrific uh, political analyst here at the FAR class. And then my great friend Greg Valliere. Greg and, and I met, uh, oh, Lord, 24. 20- 20 years ago anyway, Greg. In reform school, I believe. It, it, yes, <laughs> it, it, it was. Uh, it was uh, th- there were no convictions, uh, no. ultimately, uh, which was nice. Uh, uh, Greg and I, I think uh, the first show we did together was Wall Street Week over yep. in Owings Mills, Maryland, with yep. the great orange chair and Lou Rukeyser and crowd long time ago. God rest his soul, my, our good friend Lou. Uh, so we go back a long way. And we're going to tell you about Greg's new gig. Greg's got a new gig. Uh, uh, got a brand new bag. It's terrific. We're going to talk about it. Uh, okay, Dan Mahaffey, glad you're with us again this week. Good to have you back in Washington. Yes, well, that makes one of us uh, who feels that, <laughs> that, that way. Uh, broadcasting from Naples, Florida, as much as I miss you all, I do not miss this weather. In Washington, ladies and gentlemen, we're expecting six inches of snow tomorrow uh, and and I promise I've been back to Washington three times in the past, oh, I don't know, a couple of months, and every damn time it snowed. Uh, 
I, I, it's, it's a punishment, I'm sure. Uh, so, Dan, uh, lots going on. You know, Kenny and I were talking about the trade <laughs> between uh, soybeans and corn for quantum computing with China. <laughs> yes. uh, we have these talks going on in Washington. What up with that? Well, I think what we're seeing now is that the Chinese are still not going to bend on those technological issues. Uh, so much of the advanced technology, computing, AI, all these things are fundamental to their strategy for the future, and they're not going to want to give away that ability to uh, take technology and the technology transfers, uh, avoid the intellectual property protections. Uh, those are all vital assets in their strategy for narrowing and surpassing Western technology. And I think what they're, what we're going to try and uh, Then what are we negotiating do, about? Do we, is, why, why do we put up with that? Do we have, I mean, what could we do about it? I mean, so they say no. Well, you have this issue in the White House where you have these fundamental uh, kernels of truth, which are the technology issues, the market access, the, the fairness there. But then that also gets wrapped up with the obsession with the trade deficit and measures like that. So the Chinese, understanding that, say, okay, send us more car, uh, car parts, soybeans, stuff further down the value chain, and then they can turn around and say, okay, look, here's your win on that, and we go back to the same treadmill on intellectual property that we've been doing with the Chinese since we started, since they were in the WTO. These same issues of... Uh, so when we talk issues. about when we talk about yeah. intellectual property, can we give an example? I mean, is it is it the is it the technology within the cell phone that they that they have taken and that we're we're not getting paid patents on or rights or anything else? They've just absolutely pirated it. So there's some of that. The uh, the cases that are really interesting are the ones that the Department of Justice has actually publicly released, uh, where a a microchip company in Idaho that makes an advanced semiconductor uh, combination of Chinese. Uh, espionage, cyber intrusions, and the fact, too, where they were simply taking the parts from factories in uh, Taiwan and other areas and just reverse engineering them. And there's little uh, legal recourse within China to counter that. No legal recourse. So we're asking for some kind of legal recourse. I mean, if they're going to use the technology anyway, they, I mean, why, why wouldn't they pay uh, for some of that technology. I mean, it, wh why, why are they so unwilling to buy it? Uh, they don't seem to really have a budget problem. Well, it, it goes back so far to you even have to look at Chinese history, and we really have to unpack that, and that could be a whole episode in its own right, of that China was once technologically advanced. Think uh, paper money, printing press, gunpowder. And when it fell behind the West, it fell into 200 years of humiliation from the Opium Wars through the Communist Revolution. Uh, and to avoid that kind of interruption to Chinese civilizational greatness, they have to maintain technological superiority. Okay. You want to chime in, Greg? Greg, you're looking at me over there. <laughs> well, let me just say this. I think the markets have gotten a little too sanguine on trade. Uh, they've factored in a deal. I think there's still three things to worry about. Number one, the China deal's got a long way to go. Uh, just, just how do you enforce this thing? How in God's name do you enforce well, it? Well, so that's a big issue. Number two, we still face the possibility of auto tariffs. That's been a story in the last 48 hours or so. Not quite sure where that's going. And number three, the, the new NAFTA has, has to still be confirmed by Congress. 
and Nancy Pelosi and others are indicating they may have issues with it. So I do think we'll get a China deal eventually, but I think the markets may be starting to get a little ahead of themselves. You know, I remember, I'm, I'm thinking about this, uh, about the China, uh, you know, an intellectual property, and what are they doing, and how could we possibly monitor it? And I remember uh, in catechism class uh, <laughs> from my childhood, and I can't, Sister Mary somebody, uh, in, in catechism class, looked at my friend Michael Roddy, and she said, and I don't know why she looked at Michael Roddy, and we were, you know, probably eight or nine or ten years, ten years old or something like that. And she said, and Michael Roddy, that includes having impure thoughts. Uh, and, and, and he said, impure thoughts? And she said, yes, you're not having impure thoughts, are you? And he said, oh, no, sister. Uh, no, none of us, you know, would ever have impure thoughts. All the way through high school, college, uh, no, none of that, because we just said, no, sister, every time. I mean, I, I keep hearing the Chinese kind of say, oh, no, we wouldn't possibly do yeah, that no. and, the and whole I, time they're doing it. And I think Greg rightly points out that there's the other two legs of this three-legged trade stool that we're dealing with right now. Um, and there's going to be an interesting irony that if we do go ahead on the auto tariffs, that we may be making a deal with the Chinese and avoiding the thorny technological issues, which are very important, but then saying that BMWs and Volkswagens uh, fall as a national security threat, right. even though the biggest exporter of German cars is South Carolina. Perfect, perfect. This is exactly the kind of mire we need more of in Washington. We don't have enough of this nonsense in Washington. So is there a win here, Dan? Look, you get a short-term win, you know, maybe something on market access. I, You know, we're going to perhaps get uh, something in the financial sector access, even though that's uh, the Chinese have made a dog's breakfast of that with their own debt issues and things going on there. So it'd be kind of letting Western companies come in and help clean up that mess. Uh, but beyond that, I think you you look at the broader picture of that we went into this trade conflict we, we threw out tools like TPP. Uh, Vice President Pence was over in Europe. He could have given a speech about cooperating with the Europeans mm -hmm. to push back on China. Instead, it was probably the, the Munich Security Conference was colder than the weather here in D.C. Yeah. Okay, wait. Let's tell me. Let's talk about the Munich Security Conference for a second, because I don't think there was a lot of warm and fuzzy directed towards President Trump from the from our European friends. No, and frankly, the the Europeans have decided that uh, all their efforts to to flatter, to try and paper over the differences, that that that's over. Um, that it's they have to set out their own strategy be it on Iran, be it on the Middle East. Um, and even when it comes to the technology issues, they're, they're saying, okay, uh, you know, the U.S. is saying don't use Huawei, but what's the alternative? What do we have? Because you, we're not pursuing a common strategy or common approach on these issues. So w tell, tell me the um – uh, let's let's think about the overall risk to President Trump to a 2020 nomination. I mean, is there a real backlash here? I mean, it, uh, we've never seen a president do this before uh, to alienate some of our closest allies, and and not just to alienate him and have him feel left in the cold, but I mean, really uh, raise raise their uh, hackles. Well, when you get outside of the part of the country that thinks the uh, Acela is a cream for something rather than a, <laughs> uh, a, a form of transport, those, the, how we, the esteem we're held by our allies doesn't 
really matter? It will be a talking point among Democrats, perhaps to restore those relationships. Uh, but for the the American people and their their pocketbook issues, I don't think they see it the same way unless they really start to see the prices of cars, things like that really start to So unless there's a real economic impact, you get, you know, much higher interest rates that there's going to be pain in the pocketbook, you don't think the American people really care? Yeah, short of of some kind of, God forbid, major conflict where we find out, look, there's no allies to join us, uh, I don't see the American people starting to care Greg, you agree with that? Yeah, I do, unfortunately. Really? I'd like to disagree, but I think you're absolutely right. No blowback for the president uh, because for alienating Europe right now. Well, among people who follow this, among members of Congress, even Republicans like Rubio, I think a lot of people have grave reservations about the president's policies. But I think as an issue for the next election, there are others that are more important. Others more important. Well, I think that even there, where there would be these traditional types of pressure from a Republican, the, you know, the so-called Republican foreign policy establishment, uh, it's worth remembering Trump doesn't need a dog for a pet because he's got the Republican base. <laughs> so everyone right. who is going right. to try and push back on that is going to find that uh, there's not this uh, way to challenge him in the primary. A lot of his base showed up uh, at the midterm. I mean, it was a real Trump base that showed up in that election. I mean, it didn't carry. It was every house, everyone's but... base came. That was the the yeah. turnout thing. Everyone came yeah. out. Everyone came. It was pretty big, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, let me let me move for a second because I watched sixty minutes on uh, Sunday evening yes. and I listened to uh, former uh, acting FBI director Andrew McCabe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was rather shocking that. Um, uh, he said that the uh, assistant attorney general had actually suggested uh, exercising the 25th Amendment, uh, that there was some real serious discussion about all of that. What do you make of that, uh, of, of what's going on? I mean, other than, or is he just selling books? What's do, what, is, is, are these accusations credible from Andrew McCabe? Well, there's certainly a lot of drama, but it is the, you, you look at the, the timeline, the, the facts, the stories, and what you're seeing is at least among uh, career national security and intelligence officials that there's this growing concern of why this administration uh, chooses the policies it does. And is it uh, at best simply there to shake things up or at worst is there a some kind of, of compromise among the Trump inner circle uh, or the access that the Russians have? Because uh, his anecdote, the one that got me more than the, the 25th Amendment one, is, of course, when we had uh, Lavrov and Kislyak in the Oval Office, yes. President Trump sharing classified information, yes. uh, burning Israeli intelligence, a key partner in that process. Uh, and beyond that, the the idea to this anecdote that uh, he didn't believe what was in the presidential daily brief because uh, President Putin had told him something different. Let's see how it goes with China this week. When we come back, we're going to start to talk with Greg Valliere full-time. Though, Dan, I want you to stay with us. Uh, When we come back, we're going to discuss the world, all of this and a lot more. It's a great treat with the great Greg Valliere. Mm. Stay with us for the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Do you have an upcoming function and need a dynamic speaker to engage your audience? You've enjoyed listening to the Farcast, so why not invite Michael Farr to speak at your next event? In addition to hosting the Farcast and serving as president of the advisory firm Farr, Miller & Washington, Michael is the longest-serving paid contributor to CNBC. 
He is recognized by audiences, and his presentations on the economic outlook are always well-received. Michael has recently appeared at such venues as the Economic Club of Memphis, the University of Delaware, Matheson Financial Conference, and the YPO-WPO Economic Summit. Add your event to the growing list of organizations who have been informed and captivated by Michael's insights. For more information or to book Michael for an upcoming event, please email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com or call me at 202-530-5608. You're listening to Forecast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for being with us again this week. And we're having a terrific Farcast here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Kenny Polcari back with us, bullish on America as ever and bullish on the markets. We're going to talk about some of Kenny's views with my next guest, Greg Valliere. Of course, Dan Mahaffey, our senior political analyst here on the Farcast from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. And now, one of our great treats. This is such a, an honor, and I always learn so much whenever I talk with him. Greg Valliere is the chief global strategist uh, for, uh, on U.S. policy for AGF. Over three decades of experience following Washington for investors, he brings a unique perspective analyzing policy and politics, their impact on the markets. Uh, and Greg and I have known one another a long time, going back to Wall Street week days over in Owings Mills. You've seen him on CNBC and Bloomberg and in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and Barron's and everywhere else. This man is a pro's pro. He absolutely gets it, and he can boil things down to their very important core essence. Greg Valliere, hey, welcome, pal. I hate it when you set the bar high. You like that? <laughs> uh, uh, that's, uh, that is, that is uh, I think I actually understated uh, there. That's, uh, that's how highly I think of you. I truly do. Um, you know, going into the break there, we were, uh, we were talking about Andrew McCabe, uh, Greg, uh, what what thoughts? I mean, this this was kind of a big deal to watch this on 60 Minutes this week. There are now people around America who believe there was an attempted coup. That is a narrative that's quite popular on Fox and among Trump's what kind, Wait, what kind of coup? To oust Trump. A, a coup by people really? like Rosenstein, people like McCabe who wanted well, to... Or conspiracy. Wanted to get wired, who felt that Trump... Uh, had to be ousted. I, I, I'm not saying I believe that this should occur, but there are an awful lot of people who are saying that. R real quick anecdote. I got uh, an, a robocall last night from Rasmussen, the polling outfit. Right. I, it never happened to me. I'd never been polled in all my life. And the, a lot of the questions centered around the fact is, do you think there was an attempt to oust the president? Really? Yes. Wow. So, uh, okay, so that was a, uh, I, I, I understand, and so that's a, that's a big reaction. That helped the president then, I would guess, to fortify his base? Uh, all of us in Washington have to respect the fact that 80, 85 percent of Trump's base loves the guy. As he infamously said, I can walk up Fifth Avenue shooting people, and my base would not abandon me. So that base is so strong, I think it gives him protection against um, a conviction in the Senate, if it actually came to that. His base is so strong that he still has a chance to win re-election. Still has a chance to win re-election. Uh, what kind of a chance? We now have about, uh, from my last count, uh, 2,400 uh, candidates uh, for yeah. president in the right. Democratic Party. Yeah. I, I mean, I, they keep coming every day. Bernie Sanders today is, 
Now, is he going to run as a Democrat? No. Socialist? Yes. And that, I think, is not widely recognized, that he's not a Democrat. He'll run in their primaries. But this move to the left, this uh, flirtation with socialism from the Bronx socialists, from people like Sanders, is a gift wrap for Trump. It's a gift wrap foil for Trump. Trump can use the foil of the Democrats moving far to the left and say to people, I don't think he's accurate, but he can say to people, do you want Venezuela in America? Vote for the Democrats. Really? And and so there is a move, of course. uh, There's a new embracing of socialism going on, Uh, particularly young people seem to not, you know, not mind the idea at all. I don't understand why, you know, people can't you can't just say, look, this has been tried a lot of times all around the world. It's never, ever worked. I mean, forget it. Let's move on. Well, the numbers don't work, Michael. That's the thing. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are reporters who were infatuated with Sanders yes. or Elizabeth Warren. Yes. And the numbers for their programs don't add up. You can't, even with confiscatory taxation, you can't pay for all the things they want to do. Well, and now we're proposing confiscatory taxation. I love this new thing, Greg, where we're, uh, we're, we're now describing income taxes as a percentage of your net worth. And that, right. that I saw that on CNBC the other morning. Uh, they're making a case that uh, people with lower net worth, I mean, this is the dumbest thing. I mean, this is sixth grade math. People with a lower net worth pay a higher percentage of their net worth in income tax than people with right. a higher net worth. Well, no kidding, really? Yeah. And somehow that's unfair. Somehow that's the real problem, and we've got to get at this net worth issue. Well, that's why I guess you have to have a... Uh a tax on the wealthy, a wealth tax that Elizabeth Warren wants, I think that's unconstitutional and unenforceable. But you have a lot of ideas floating around right now. And this is, again, a gift for the Republicans who needed an issue. And, well, they've got, they've got so many. <laughs> they've got so many issues now. We have a huge field of Democratic candidates. Yeah. How does that sort itself out? Who do you get, get? So handicap this race for us early on here. Who has a chance? Well, as Dan and you know, I mean, the name of the game is amassing enough delegates to win the nomination. And the delegate process, I think, will have its first big event in California where Kamala Harris should do quite well. She could be the early front runner in delegates. Really? Yeah. But I, I think there's several other names you can't ignore. Uh, one would be Joe Biden, who I would say right now, based on the polls, is a very shaky favorite. We don't know what Bloomberg is going to do. He may be too conservative uh, or moderate for the party. But I, I think we have a long way to see who gets enough delegates. This thing could go till the very end of the primary season before we know. Is Bloomberg a Democrat? Yeah, well, he changed his registration. Uh, he likes stop and frisk uh, for the police. He loves Wall Street. A lot of his positions are not real popular among liberal Democrats. And Kamala Harris, if Kamala Harris goes in, and uh, I was also, uh, I've been reading, doing a lot of reading that uh, Beto O'Rourke is also a darling now of the party and is raising a lot of money. Yes, he is. But I think a lot of these Democrats running now are, are changing their line. Yesterday, Harris said, I'm not a socialist. She walked far away from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Amy Klobuchar had a town hall meeting last night in which she sounded very pragmatic. Biden would be a pragmatist. Bloomberg would be a pragmatist. I think a lot of Democrats realize if they veer too sharply to the left to win the nomination, they can't win the general election.
Can, okay, let's go to that for just a second. Uh, I, I, I actually talked with Joan Woodward today from The Travelers, who does Washington policy for The Travelers. Uh, she thought that Beto O'Rourke had already won the vice presidential slot, and it didn't matter who the lead candidate was, that he was that popular and he had that much money already. He's just going to get that. Does that make sense to you? He's got a ways to go. I mean, he, when you start filming your dental appointments, you've got to question his, his judgment. A lot of Democrats think he's too much of a lone wolf. We'll see. I mean, there's some seasoning. We'll see what the gravi- gravitas factor uh, means for him. He could be a player. Okay, so if we have uh, Vice President Biden running uh, for the and, and is, is the lead ticket, what if you had a Biden-Beto-O'Rourke ticket? Is there any combination out there that can beat Trump? I think, I think Biden could beat Trump. I mean, he'd have to get... Uh, a running mate who might bring him a state. I'm not sure Beto can bring you Texas, but it, it might be close. I think that a Biden-Klobuchar ticket, a Biden-Sherrod Brown ticket, and even Kamala Harris ticket, although California's going for the Democrats no matter what. But I, I do think if you look at Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, three of those states, the exception being Ohio, could go for Biden. Really? Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania could go for Biden. Michigan could go for Biden? Well, I look, at, I look at the election last November, and in the upper Midwest, the Democrats did very, very well. Okay. So as we are now looking, I'm going to swing back here, uh, Greg, to the Federal Reserve, who seems to have gone to this, well, clearly gone to this neutral position. Uh, is it, Will they stay there? What do you make of the economy? And did... Jay Powell roll over here. He was intimidated not by Donald Trump. I can't see Trump intimidating the Fed. He was intimidated by the markets. The markets sent him a very strong message, don't do any more tightening. And I think he, he got it. I think he's not going to touch that hot stove again. I think we've got months and months and months to go before a rate hike is even considered by the Fed. Okay. And what about the economy? It seems to be growing. You know, I had the great privilege this morning of presenting the 2019 economic forecast with Dr. Loretta Mester at the University of Delaware. They have been so kind to me. This was my 11th or 12th year uh, doing the economic forecast with one or uh, many different Fed uh, presidents. She was terrific. She is so bright, so articulate, so level-headed and thoughtful. Uh, uh, Dr. Mester president of the Cleveland Federal Reserve Bank, said that she really didn't see any recession in any of her work coming up over the next, really, three years. And she was clear about it. She said, no, I have no recession on the paper. The economy's not bad, right, Greg? Well, I have to defer to you. You're the expert. It's like playing ball with LeBron. I mean, you're the, you're, you're the, man, <laughs> you're, you're the man here. Don't tell him that. Oh, maybe not. I don't want to. <laughs> but l- l- let me just say two well, things. Well, on that point, let well, me say this about that. Well, <laughs> l- l- let me just say two things about the economy. Number one is, to me, the key has always been real disposable income because that d- determines consumer spending. Look at real disposable income, cheap gasoline, interest rates lower, wages picking up. People have more money in their pockets. It's that simple. The second thing I'd say is that I travel all around America. I've got the frequent flyer miles to prove it. So many areas of America are red hot right now. Seattle, Charlotte, Nashville, big chunks of the country have run out of skilled labor. Maybe in the Northeast or in the upper Midwest it's only fair, but I think the basic economy in this country is very solid. So, and I think that's one thing that's going to affect the perception of the economy 
going into 2020 is if that disposable income growth can outpace some of the rise in costs that we're seeing, particularly where the economy is doing hot. Because when you get to the people who are following this socialism uh, trend, it's really the cost of housing, the cost yep. of education, the cost of health care. It's the rising prices of things that are making people feel like even though things are great, they're not as good as they could be. And, Dan, I would just add, people under the age of 30 have not participated in this recovery. Their wages are stagnant. They're paying a lot of money for health care. They're alienated. Uh, maybe some of them flirt with socialism. That's a group Trump's got to help work on if he wants to get reelected. The young people. Uh, we're coming almost to the end of our time here. I, I, I want to just cover one theory because we, uh, of my own, if you'll indulge me. And it's my show, so I guess, you know, what the hell. Let me, let me go out on the thin branches okay, there. Okay, LeBron. Yes, LeBron. Yeah. In my LeBron my, here's my LeBron moment. Uh, that retail sales number, Greg, that we got last week that was so horrible, uh, I think, uh, and I talked with uh, Loretta Mester about this last night, and oddly she agreed with me. Uh, I'm always <laughs> shocked when Fed governors actually agree with me. But I said, you know, I didn't see that number of that retail sales number over the holiday season. Uh, certainly it was just one uh, point, uh, one piece of datum, but I didn't see that as a comment on the soundness of the consumer uh, over the holiday season, but rather the attitude and the mental mood of the consumer. It's not that the consumer wasn't able to spend. It was that the consumer saw the markets down 20%. The consumer saw a government shutdown with 800,000 of their fellow Americans who were treated as pawns in a much bigger game but, but that on, on, on Capitol Hill, uh, but where they clearly, the worker in that equation, just didn't matter how they were going to pay for anything. And uh, so I think the consumer's still okay. I don't mm -hmm. think that was a tragic moment. Uh, I think that that mood and, and, and optimism can return uh, and, and, and that we can see a rebound fairly quickly. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. I mean, we're going to have a lousy first quarter, probably one, one point something, but we'll snap back in the second quarter. And by, by having this weakness right now, we've got a Treasury 10-year bond deal with like 260 or something. Yes. With interest rates this low, that provides the fuel for a much stronger second quarter. There's plenty of cash around. The cash is inexpensive. Mm -hmm. And it just it does take people's appetite to use it. And I can't think we tapped the brakes a bit in December. And to your point, Jay Powell, listen, that's very important. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I think... I don't know if you wrote this. And ladies and gentlemen, I read Greg Valliere every day. I've read Greg Valliere every day for 20 years. He is my must-read in the morning uh, in, in Washington. It is, I, I, I highly commend it to you. Follow Greg's writings. Subscribe. How do they subscribe to your stuff, Greg? They can just uh, email me at AGF in Toronto. It's, 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 you can Google it. AGF Toronto. Greg Valliere, get his stuff. I mean, if you really want to understand what's going on in Washington, uh, it, it's, it's, really, uh, it's really, Greg, that you talked about the strength of the economic fundamentals, the strength of the consumer, that mood uh, that's out there more broadly in Washington. That's what we have to listen to. But I think as we listen to you, there is a reasonable growth out there. Corporate earnings, what do you think, 5%? Yes, I think we're in that neighborhood. You know, Michael, I tell all the audiences I meet with that to, to try to ignore all the Washington dysfunction, the tweets, the scandals, all this stuff inside the Beltway, and focus on, as you said, 
how good the fundamentals are. Inflation's tame. GDP's okay. Labor market is still really strong. Corporate earnings are good. On and on and on. I think the fundamentals are great. Ladies and gentlemen, my great friend, Greg Valier from AGF. Greg uh, is a pros pro. Uh, Google AGF. Uh, and and subscribe to his stuff. It's a, you'll do yourself a great favor. I hope you'll come back and join us, Greg. Uh, Dan Mahaffey, thank you. Uh, Good to be here. Harry Jennings, Claude, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for another great forecast. We will be with you again next week. And I am so grateful uh, that you continue to download our podcast. Please share them with a friend. In Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. We're always happy to hear from you. You can reach us at Farcast at FarMiller.com. We'd like to remind you that if you think you've heard a recommendation to buy or sell any security this week, you haven't. Farcast is for informational purposes only, and we hope that you find the information useful. But before you make any investing decision, we always recommend that you do your research and discuss with your financial advisor. If we can be of any help at Far Miller in Washington, please give us a call at 202-530-5600 or email us at invest at farmiller.com.